Welcome to Smaller Narratives for a Larger World, brought to you by IASH, Binghamton University's Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities. I'm your host, Cole DePew, and today we're talking to David Mixter about the human myth. David is an amazing thinker, archaeologist, and human being, and we get into the ancient Mayans, collective memory, the disnification of historical sites, and so much more. So without further ado, here's our show. All right. How are you, David Mixter? Great to have you. Yeah, I'm doing well. Really happy to be here, Cole. Awesome. So would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? What do you do? What do you study? Yeah, so um, I'm a, a research assistant professor, a faculty member here at Binghamton University in um, both the environmental studies program and the department of anthropology. Um, but, you know, I'm actually an archaeologist by training, um, coming out of a sort of anthropological archaeology background. Um, and, you know, sort of Broadly, I'm interested. I mean, my, my, my field research is in in Central America, in Western Belize, working on sort of pre-colonial Maya societies. Um, but um, generally, I'm I'm sort of interested in like um, the dynamics of how people inhabit space, and and particularly like long lived, long occupied places and spaces, like you know, cities that are that are lived in for hundreds and thousands of years and, and just the really complex dynamics that, that come about from um, you know the very fact that people are building and, and rebuilding and, and recreating spaces over really long periods of time. So uh, when did you get into archaeology? Because I feel like every kid is into that and then they sort of forget about it. Yeah, well, I mean, I was I was really more into paleontology when I was a kid, all about oh, all about dinosaur bones. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So, but um, no. So I got into archaeology like in in a pretty sort of typical standard kind of way. Um, I took a class when I'm my first year as an undergrad, mm -hmm. um, and it was a, a small sort of seminar course um, about. Uh, you know, sort of freshman seminar. So all, all freshmen, all of us mm -hmm. like baby faced, unknowing, <laughs> impressionable youngsters um, on the Aztecs of Mexico. And like, we really, um, you know, the, the professor was an art historian, uh, a, a woman named uh, 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 Mary Miller, who's, you know, a very distinguished mm -hmm. uh, professor, uh, uh, art historian. And it, it, we really sort of dug very deeply into like who the Aztecs were, um, you know, what they did, you know, the, the Aztecs are sort of interesting because they're like this new world empire that yeah. rose and existed for honestly for, you know, less than a century, a very short period of time before the Spanish arrived and, and, uh, you know, totally mucked up the new world, the new world. Um, and, uh, um, it was so cool because we combined like looking at both sort of the material, the visual, um, record right mm -hmm. art architecture that sort of thing and the, the the archaeological data like you know from sort of more like houses and, and occupation contexts and stuff like that and then also like um you know the the the, the documentary record from when the spanish arrived and, and also some you know indigenous sources as well that, to the extent that they exist on in order to sort of interpret those you know more oblique uh, uh data sources um <laughs> And, you know, it's really cool sort of reading about, like, from Frere Sahagun and, like, his, like, I don't even know how many, I don't even remember anymore how many yeah. volumes, but a huge, you know, this, this, like, you know, documentary tome that he, he sort of recorded about Aztec life and ritual. And, and, and anyway, I was hooked. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is the sort of, is the sort of short of it. That's um, so cool. Last, um, last show, I talked to a speculative poet. Her name was Akua mm -hmm. Leslie Hope. So she writes futuristic poetry kind of reimagining the, the myth of the future. Sure. Um, and I think this is so cool because we're talking about the past. So uh, is there any particular reason you're attracted to the past? Do you find it romantic or do you like, you know, learn about yourself from it? Like, what's What is it about the past? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think, I think sort of that romanticizing of the past is why a lot of us get into it in the first mm -hmm. place. Yeah. But I, I, I can't say that I really think about it that way anymore, oh. you know? And like, to me, the past is, the past is important and the, certainly the, the past in the context that I'm dealing with is important for two reasons. One is like 
you know, I think it really is important just to kind of create a documentary record mm-hmm. to the best we can of what what the past looked like. And I think that's particularly true in non-Western contexts. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, where, where I work in, in, in Central America, where um, historical documents are, are much more limited, right? And then a lot of them are sort of massively biased. Like, mm-hmm. like, yeah. like I was talking about Frere Sahagun. Like, like when you're talking about European friars recording the history of indigenous people, like there, that's, there's kind of a, there, there are definitely some biases and <laughs> translation issues there to, yeah. that you have to filter through as you're trying to sort of see what they're, uh, understand what they're saying. Um, and, you know, archaeology is, is cool because at, the, at least the data, you know, is, doesn't have, possess those biases. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we still have to be careful about the way we interpret those data. But, I, I, you know, to me, that in and of itself is very important, you know, providing a past to people whose past has been stripped from them by colonialism. Um, That's so yeah. cool. Yeah, re- kind of rescuing uh, <clears throat> a history from yeah, being hijacked. Yeah, um, and destroyed. So, could you tell us a little bit about where is Belize um, and the projects you're you're doing down there? So, the project I'm working on down in Belize is is located in western Belize. It is just an mm. ancient Maya site called um, Octun Khan, and we are uh, we're interested in the, like lots of different questions, but but um, the project kind of emerged out of an interest in what the origins of hierarchy look like in the okay. area. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the site is pretty old, it's, it's, it, it dates back, it sort of it was, dates back to 1000 BC when it was sort of was first founded a little village, but then around um, 250 BC or so, it really exploded into sort of a mass, a much more, um, monumental kind of center with with big Maya pyramids, like you might be used to seeing on, on National Geographic documentaries yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but my my, you know, so I, I sort of came onto the project when it had that focus. Um, but my own individual research, uh, you know, it's a big collaborative work, so lots of us doing different kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, my individual research started to kind of focus much more on um, the end of time at the site. And in particular, like, uh, uh, so it's around 800 AD. So, you know, a thousand years later from mm-hmm. this kind of benchmark when the site kind of booms. And at that point in time, um, we see in the Maya world this kind of falling away of certain kinds of political institutions, um, in particular, like the falling away of, of uh, Maya divine kings, who sort of were at the top of ancient Maya hierarchies. Mm-hmm. And um, what's interesting about the about Akhun Khan uh, is is after that sort of boom, the site went through like a kind of period, a, a really sort of low period where it wasn't sort of an important political center and was kind of subordinate and poor and these kinds of things. But then at this moment, when like this institution of kingship is falling away, the site has has a sort of regeneration and regrowth. Um, which is cool. And they build new, new architecture. They build sort of big platforms. It seems to be sort of more inclusive kinds of decision-making structures, hmm. um, you know, a movement towards, uh, yeah, just like more inclusive ways of, of doing things, which is very, which is interesting to me. And at the same time, they're kind of like stealing stones from all the old pyramids and buildings that were um, across the site, um, leaving like these really kind of just like piles of rubble of the stones that sort of used to fill my plat- the platforms that these pyramids and temples and administrative structures sat on. So there's this new kind of cool administrative center that's linked into like, like all of these old households and families that have been living around the city for, you know, a thousand years, it probably some of them. And uh, yet they're like administering their you know, they're coming together and gathering at this sort of new administrative civic space, but it's amongst ruins. Like it's mm-hmm. literally amongst ruins. And so like, you know, this is where the, my interest in kind of these long-term cities and the long-term, you know, um, occupation of spaces looks like. It's like, how do you imagine living in a space where you have ruins all around you? Mm-hmm. How do we imagine what that experience might have looked like, been like for these people, for these folks? How can we sort of 
situate their life, their life experience, as well as the choice to do this, right? They didn't have to build this new civic architecture right there in the middle of this old center. Like there's plenty of empty space, you know, plenty of farmland that they could have chosen to build this new thing. Like we don't, you know, this old city is like, whatever, like, let's go build something like totally new. Um, they didn't have to make that choice, but they did. They wanted to anchor what they were doing within the old sort of urban, urban kinds of contexts. Um, That's something yeah. so foreign to, to, I think a lot of Americans, uh, like Euro American or anything like that. Um, because the, you know, I, you'll go through a main street in an old town and there'll be a, a colonial house from like 300 years ago. And it's a landmark, uh, right. you know, and people preserve it. There's some, we're kind of protective about certain, certain past. It kind of gets grandfathered in. We don't like old stuff, but we like really old stuff. So it survives that, that, that window. And I went to Rome once and there were just these beautiful pillars and I don't even know, structures and sculptures. And I first, I personally felt comforted by that. I felt more human. I felt a part of a longer story, which I think was uh, anchored. It felt anchoring um, walking around it, but you know, like indigenous cultures to America, um, you know, they definitely changed the environment a lot, but they didn't leave a lot of these huge structures, like stone structures that will last for a long time. And I think that's kind of a, a, a big reason why a lot of people don't, it's hard to remember that those people lived here not very, not very long ago. I mean, even Binghamton University, uh, you know, there's Native American populations that were there a couple hundred years ago. And it's just like not top of mind kind of thing. Yeah, I will. I mean, but but also today, right? I mean, we're this is still indigenous land, right? Uh, right. We, where Binghamton University is, you know, we're we're within the histor on the historical lands of the Onondaga Nation, which mm-hmm. you know still exists as a sovereign nation, you know, up, you know, w- you know, in a much more restricted sort of territorial zone, but mm-hmm. further north of us here, um, you know, and. And there are still indigenous people who live in these communities and these environments. It, you know, it's 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 important to sort of not forget that it's not right. like it was two hundred years ago. I mean, this is present right. history. Um, you know, and and I mean that that's part of why I really like working. I mean, that's that's part of working in the Maya world is that actually we do have these huge stone structures. Yeah, we just don't think about them in America because they're not. You know, they're a little bit more distant. Mm-hmm. They're very foreign feeling, right? They're mm-hmm. sort of like these stone cities in the jungle. Um, you know, if you go to Yucatan and, and I mean, our, our exposure to, for a lot of folks' exposure to Yucatan, right, is going to the pit, going to the beaches along the, the Maya Riviera and maybe you go see a site at Tulum or you go see Chichen Itza. And I mean, those are monumental sort of exemplars of um, Maya architecture. But, you know, the modern great modern day cities of of Mexico and Central America are built on old indigenous capitals. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, Guatemala City was once Caminal Huyu. Uh, Mexico City was once Tenochtitlan. Uh, even in Yucatan, like this Merida is built on an old, which is sort of the capital of Yucatan, is built on an old um, uh, Maya city. Um, and those Maya, I mean, in, in a lot of these places, you can still see the foundations of those buildings. Um, that you know have more modern uh, architecture on top of them, just like you can in a lot of European cities. It's really not any different, you know. Like, it's just a question of what history is valued in those in these kinds of discussions about how you sort of see and understand the age of space and the age of landscapes. Um, you know, yeah, uh, we don't see that kind of monumental architecture from indigenous groups up here in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean they didn't have very sophisticated political systems and communities and those sorts of things. In fact, we know they did. Mm-hmm. We know they did. Um, I was just watching a, 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 a discussion around the launch of a, a new book yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a book called uh, uh, Dawn of Everything that that's by um, uh an anthropologist and archaeologist, David Graeber and David Wengrow. And, and, and they, they talk about and trace out how like European ideas of freedom mm-hmm. that we sort of see as the bedrock concepts of democracy um, actually like 
were foreign concepts in Europe before colonialism and are entirely derived from observations of indigenous people in North America. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there was a... I mean, that's all been like, that history has all been plastered over, right? Yeah. By, oh. by sort of Western scholarship from the 17th and 18th century. But that's that's the direct line, intellectual line. Yeah, I mean, I think about when I was a kid in middle school, I think I learned a lot of U.S. history. Uh, and, you know, it was a lot of, you know, conquering, you know, white guys winning, winning, winning. Uh, you know, Indians were cool. They were romanticized. As a young kid, I, you know, I played, or, you know, Native Americans, but we called them um, Indians. Uh, we would play games where we would enact, you know, like really stereotypical uh depictions of native americans uh, and i was never told you know i was on you know, stolen land or anything i think that's kind of a hot button issue right now in a lot of schools and like critical race theory and you know do we do we want to face those challenges those mistakes as a nation um or do we want to just kind of you know pre- pretend they didn't happen you know it's definitely an uncomfortable situation but you know, it's really cool that you are so uh, invested in, you know, advocating for the past in different places. And I think we, you know, I think that the future can change the past, or at least the present can change the past. So, you know, we can either erase the past, or we can magnify it, or we can appreciate it. And I think well, a lot of your work create recreates that 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 story. Yeah, and I mean, you know, earlier you asked me like why I think the past is so important, and I gave yeah. you the first answer, right? But the second answer is because I think the past is key to understand, to sort of visualizing the future, Mm. both our presence and the future, because, you know, one, you know, it's like, like being able to sort of visualize the way things happen in the future or in the past can provide us with different ways of imagining the future. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think even more, um, critically to that and 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 you know what's become what's become really interesting to me in my research is that it, the there isn't one sort of conceptualization of the past actually right. and um sort of approaches that sort of see understanding the past as a, as a totally empirical endeavor miss the reality yeah. that which is that the way that we conceptualize the past is sort of fundamentally anchored in you know, our, our sort of goals and approaches and biases and, 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 and these kinds of things. Um, you know, I wish I could say like the past was just a blank slate of things, of events that had happened, right? Like that's the old approach to history. Yeah. Like we're just going to reconstruct what happened. But it's like, but that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. One, you never can reconstruct history but two you know his like history is part facts and part memory mm-hmm. and it always will be and the way that we that the way that the past is conceptualized and um the selections about what is rem- are rem- what things are remembered mm-hmm. and the way that those kinds of ideas about the past are leveraged in the present is really how they have an impact as opposed to just sort of sets of facts and ideas this you know so and i yeah and so i think that 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 is the other sort of piece of the puzzle that's super important i've really gotten into um sort of theories on um on heritage yeah and how how ideas around uh, how we sort of conceptualize sort of Heritage kind of takes two approaches to the past. One is a sort of institutional view where, you know, that's kind of like sedimented in like the UNESCO World Heritage Site, uh, mm-hmm. you know, acts, which is a very sort of Western white idea of mm-hmm. heritage. And the idea that there are important places and objects and things that need to be preserved because they have some, um, I don't know, fundamental, irreplaceable value. Mm-hmm. So value to whom? Value for what? Why preserve? You know, like there's also like, you know, there's sort of a few problems with that. One is like, who's making these decisions? And the other one is the assumption that the right way to deal with the past is to place it in stasis. Mm -hmm. 
I um I studied abroad in Barcelona for a semester, which is like how I got to Rome in the first place. And uh, I'm also from Newtown, Connecticut, where there there was that large school shooting, and right. I was really uh, blown away by a contrast in cultural um, preservation, like you say. So I stayed in an apartment right across from this plaza and church. It's a cathedral, Barcelona. And there was a preschool in the back of the church. And on the wall of the preschool is, um, it's a stone, beautiful cathedral, really, really old. And there are bullet holes in the stone from the Spanish Civil War about 60 years earlier. And there were kids playing around. Um, and that was really, that meant, that really hit me because um, they, at Sandy Hook School, where I, I went, my families from they tore the school down right after and they no judgment for any of it I, that was probably the right move but it really did blow my mind to see kids playing around those you know uh, reminders of violence and how it wasn't kind of just the building wasn't thrown away after um, so I know that heritage theory it's so cultural it's so different like you know what do we want to forget what do we need to remember I think those are important decisions not to take lightly yeah no i i thank you for sharing that oh, yeah. um, experience yeah i think i mean like that is ultimately the sort of the challenge is you know there's this idea about heritage how heritage should work and right like you know you you very clearly pointed to sort of just like cultural differences mm-hmm. and sort of ideals around preservation i think I think you can also just see in those kinds of two examples, you can also just see the difference that kind of the weight of deeper history has on the past. Mm-hmm. Like it's in in places like, you know, Spain, you know, in Spain and in Italy, like you can't tear anything down. Right. You know, everything is so old. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is consider, you know, considered to be too valuable for its 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 kind of um, existence. I had a, a, an, a, I was talking about these issues with a friend from Rome one time. Oh, cool. And she, 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 we were talking about just like changes to the landscape. Actually, we were talking about it in the context of like, um, uh, uh, fascist architecture from mm-hmm. World War II and, and before World War II. That was, you know, there's just like tons of buildings built in, in, in Germany and Italy yeah. during those eras. And, like one of the major sort of challenges of those nation states is figuring out like what to do with this like all this physical built material mm-hmm. um, and you know she's talking about she's like you know like under Mussolini it was the last time anyone could build anything in Rome because it was the last time there was you know political authority with enough like authority mm-hmm. you know to, to, to decide to tear down really old stuff. Whoa. And she's like, you know, those buildings are sort of valued because of the fact that they are like just newer, <laughs> right? <laughs> They're in better shape wow. than everything else. And she said, but, and she was like, and yeah, like, you know, maybe we should reckon with this, but it's also just like, that's the city we live in. And like, those are the places we live amongst. Um, and, you know, she, she said, you know, in Italy, nobody tears down anything anymore. And, um, and I, you know, I, was, I thought that was so striking. Yeah. Because especially sort of thinking, you know, in the context of like the debates we have around heritage in, in the U.S. Uh, recently, like Confederate monuments. Mm, right. Right. Yeah. It's so, you know, the U.S. context is so different because in a lot of ways are, are hit because, because the sort of, history of the nation state, which is, you know, how people sort of, you know, pop- conceive of our history in a popular mm-hmm. um, conception, um, which, which is not, not great that we sort of exclude the deeper sort of Native American history. But yeah. Because the his- the idea of history in the U.S. is so short, um, it seems so easy to make changes. Mm. Like, you know, it's so easy to try and decide to erase things and remove things and, you know, melt them down. And maybe those are the right decisions. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that sort of like spending a lot of time thinking about this has given me is that there, it's not, it's not clear that there is any right decision. There are just hard decisions (laughs) in these kinds of circumstances. 
um, you know, and you know, tracing actually like in tracing in in um, in, in places like um, like Nuremberg, tracing the sort of series of decisions that have been made about how to try and reckon with the physical infrastructure of 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 Nazism is like, you know. They've, they've done so many different kinds of things over the years that you can see the experimentation, which is, I think, key. But also, like, you can see how dissatisfied every intervention is, dissatisfying every intervention is. Yeah, you bring up uh, um, World War II and everything, and it reminds me of this really odd phenomenon of, um, like, Auschwitz being a tourist destination now. Mm-hmm. Now there's like a gift shop and people travel to go visit on vacation even. And of course, it's a really solemn, spiritual, devastating part of recent human history. Um, but it's still like the gift shop. And, you know, is it, a, I don't know, just like tragedy, tourism, or is it something it's so important to see? I think it is. I think it's a little both. Like you say, like, I don't you know. It's, I don't mind that, you know, people go and see it. I personally would, I think, go there, but it's almost like, why would I want to go see that? You know, is it like the same thing as me thinking of it as a movie or a story now? Because it's so far like away in a sense. There's this like Western idea of time as an object and the past is far away. It's so far away. I could never get there if I wanted. The future next week is so far away. Like it's, you know, traveling across a field or something. But yeah, what are you, what are your thoughts about like museums um, and that kind of uh, treatment of, of historical places? Yeah, um, actually, there's a it's there's a there's a there's a, a famous book in the heritage literature by a guy named uh, David Lowenthal that's titled "The Past Is a Foreign Country." Oh, really? Um, yeah, which is I I think I, I love it as an idea. Yeah. Um, hmm. Like, like. You know, in a lot of ways, like the past can be very familiar, and you feel like you know it. But like, but in a lot of ways, but that's just like, but it, but but, and I think I think those, I think when the past feels familiar, all that really tells you is that you haven't thought about it enough. <laughs> um, yeah. Because to me, the past, like the idea of the past as a foreign country, is like it, in in so many ways, it's unknowable from a from your from our kind of culturally specific perspective like all we can do is is sort of can think about it critically and consider the different possibilities and but but you know otherwise we're always reconstructing it from people's perspectives from people's memories from you know documentary sources from you know even more recent technologies like film and you know photography are are still sort of biased in the images that they and and angles and perspectives they they give us i mean they can they can show us what happened in particular kinds of snippets but they can never tell us what people are thinking what those people are thinking how those people are feeling you know the the sort of various experiences of that of that of that space and time um it, to get back to your sort of question though um so i I mean i haven't i i'm not going to claim that i've spent a lot of time studying the 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 auschwitz example in particular Mm -hmm. um which i think has a lot of particularities um that are that are are important uh to consider um but this is one of the major tensions of kind of cultural heritage and the treatment of cultural heritage which is um that it like everything else, the the decisions that are made are situated within a the sort of authorized and you know institutionally expected way of treating things, mm-hmm. um, which are cast within like the the sort of all encompassing nature of our capitalist kind of society. Mm. Um, so just to kind of like break that down like a little bit yeah more <laughs> um that, like like you, why do we need gift shops at these kinds yeah. of solemn sites like you can think about the importance of sites of violence in terms of like as pilgrimage sites right mm-hmm. you've got to go you want to go it's important for people to see these places in order to remember them um 
you know, it's important for the Holocaust to be thought about and remembered and con- contemplated, particularly, in, you know, in the face of like attempts to create alternate strains of history right? Um, that deny its existence and, you know, deny the motivations of those who perpetuated that violence and, and those kinds of things. On the other hand, we as a, as a modern society seem to be incapable of, you know, of, of avoiding an opportunity to make a buck, right? <laughs> I mean, to yeah. put a to put it really bluntly, right? Oh yeah. Um, and the pressure there's a lot of pressure for those things kind of to happen, right? Like sites, heritage sites have staffs, yeah, and they have uh, uh, administrators, and they have. Um, you know, people who spend time cleaning, mm-hmm. people who have to upkeep the space, curators who have to make sure stuff doesn't fall apart, um, people who are designing exhibits, and that's that all has to be paid for. And so you have to sort of like, you know, there there's this inevitable linkage between the the sort of presentation of heritage sites and these the nece- the necessary means of of any kind of institution to to be able to to support its survival um and that those are hard pressures and those are hard pressures for kinds of institute those are particularly hard pressures for the kinds of institutions support who who are trying to present these very very violent and and very very difficult kinds of pasts to the public um and it also like clearly to me at least is a good illustration of the difference between how heritage works and sort of the institutional imaginary, like the way that things like UNESCO and sort of international and, and the folks who, and, and sort of the leaders of nation states and stuff like that, who, who sort of collectively decide what is and isn't important in the past mm-hmm. for, for this kind of preservation and the way that, that heritage works in a more popular sort of uh, context, right? There's so much, yeah, so much involved in that that idea of the gift shop because I do, I do, uh, I, I, I understand like you know there are employees and I think that's you know a very practical uh, um, aspect of it. Um, I also think the idea of the gift shop as you know like to spend money to have a souvenir um, is it's it feels harmless, but then it almost it almost feeds into this idea that okay. So I have an expectation of what I'm going to see when I go to Auschwitz and I need to see that, you know, mm-hmm. I need to be, uh, I need to be wowed or I need to s- just see the things that I've seen in movies maybe. And, um, and I wonder what kind of pressures there is to recreate a version of it that is appetizing to people. Um, so it almost turns into a theme, a theme park and for lack of, uh, better way to put that. I mean, they do this at national parks like Yellowstone, where they'll contain, like they'll, you know, make the herd of buffalo go to a certain place to so people can see what they want to see. They want to see the buffalo in the field at this time of day, even though it's completely, you know, fabricated. Um, and I think, you know, you, you mentioned to me before when we spoke a collective memory, and I wonder what the pressure is of collective memory to justify the way we think of the past. Um, by kind of recreating the past in that vision. Yeah, I mean that's so tricky. Mm. Um, you know that that sort of like so that 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 idea that you're kind of talking about. I mean, is as often discussed as the Disneyfication of yeah, heritage. yeah. It's like you know every heritage site needs to be Walt Disney World. Yeah, right. And, and 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 not so much in terms of the rides, right? right. But the the sometimes um but um uh, uh i mean it's no coincidence that there's a, a bush gardens right outside of colonial williamsburg right oh the the um but 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 in terms of the like veneer right the shiny yeah. presentation the or let's go with glossy is a better word the yeah. glossy presentation the of, you know, the, the kind of glossy brochures, 
the everything is clean and just so the you know manicured lawns and landscapes you know even if it's a place that wasn't necessarily famous for like lawns and landscapes Mm -hmm. the um yeah i mean you know the the staging right you were talking about the buffalo at yellow yeah the photo ops you need yeah the photo ops and the staging and um it's something that heritage professionals really struggle with Mm. um both in the sense of like you know both kind of the way that i think you're insinuating in terms of the sort of worry about authenticity Mm -hmm. and like are we you know there's this constant sort of question about are we presenting authentic experiences i mean i it's a cold question what is what is it yeah i know right right but stuff um but like that sort of authenticity issue well and, and that's the that's the sort of challenge that that heritage professionals often have right because there's this tension between the sort of the the sort of note the sort of authorized notions that these sites are places that that heritage sites are places to show off and be seen and you know sort of do certain kinds of cultural and identity work mm-hmm. within society and the 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 sort of heritage professionals vision of them as as much more nuanced and complex places typically that you know actually were were the the locales of lots of different kinds of experiences and um and you know may or may not fit within the sort of authorized sense of what kinds of heritage are important you know it's it's because it's not just about the forms of presentation right i think i think like forms of presentation is important but like there are certain kinds of places that are preserved in these ways Mm. you know you talked about sites of violence which is definitely like like the kind of thing like um auschwitz but also like battlefields very often gettysburg right gettysburg um but you also the other kinds of places are like big you know monumental kinds of locales right like niagara falls yeah, sure. Well, so from a natural perspective, oh, yeah, okay. things like Niagara Falls. I was thinking like Monticello, right? Oh, yeah. like the great manor houses of like founders. Nice. I mean, in 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 England, they talk about like 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 you know, you know in Europe, you see like castles and yeah. abbeys and cathedrals oh, yeah. and like like this kind of thing, right? And um, you know, in uh, 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 in Europe, they talk about sort of English manor houses. Right. There's this whole sort of like, I mean, this is, I think, familiar now to a lot of people because of Downton Abbey. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's this, there's all of these old English manor homes that used to be the homes of sort of like of the the social elites who, who couldn't afford to actually upkeep these landscapes anymore. And so they <laughs> sold them off to become tourist destinations. And basically, like, there's just all of these English uh, country houses that are, tur- that are set up for tourists to see them effectively. And there, and many of them are held by the government now in what's called the national trust, mm-hmm. right? Which means it's a formalized official, officially sanctioned idea that this is the heritage of our country are these like big elite mansions, but whose heritage, right? Right. So, I mean, cause these are, these, these are the kinds of houses that were only lived in very, by a very, very small percentage of the population. And, even and most of them were living there in forms of service, and yet nobody looks at the goes into the servants' quarters, right? Like everybody, it's 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 the beautiful rooms and the paintings and the furniture and like this sort and the gardens and that kind of thing, right? That becomes important. Why? And in contrast, like when we think about heritage, we're not like thinking about like coal mining villages right no we're, we're not thinking about like dirty fishermen's wharfs right like everyday kind of experiences that actually were the past of most people why right like that's sort of an like like there there's you know it's not just you know so there's this like the disneyfication is like the commodification of the culture mm-hmm. but that also points to the preservation of certain kinds of things that are amenable to that kind of commodification. Yeah, I wonder what the what like nostalgia has to do 
it's just a few human phenomenon. Uh, it's just like a rut that so many people fall into is remembering the past better than it was. Like, no matter like, and I think for me, I I think of it as anything. It's kind of why we think things are going to go better than they are going to, and we think things went better than they did, but we always think the present is worse than it should be some, for some reason. Um, but you know, recreating it, I, I think memory is. Uh, often considered like flipping through your old photos but it's so different it's more like it's got a dream hint to it because you're creating and perceiving at the same time so i think of my childhood i have memories of my childhood if my mom said hey do you remember that time that you almost broke your toe i would probably say yeah even though maybe it never even happened because i can i just recreated it in my head as an as something and it's no different than any other one it's just so strange with the nostalgia, like like you say, you know, the romantic romanticization of our cultures. Yeah, and 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 I think it's even, you know, yeah, like I think that kind of nostalgia is a big part of it, right? Like yeah. it's a want, it's a desire to think about sort of a past that is cast in a positive light, mm-hmm. right? I think that's a lot of the sort of tension today yeah. against kind of narratives that are trying to recast American past in, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the, the forms of violence that, that happened, um, you know, just through the growth of the country and the, dis- and the, the sort of institutions that existed. And I mean, you know, Native American displacement, slavery, and then the, the sort of, you know, inability to equitably integrate the, the sort of victims of those um, kinds of atrocities into into sort of society uh, after those after those practices kind of stopped. Um, it, it like you know there's you know people don't want to reckon with that. I think no. you're right. Like there's this sort of positive you know vision, this kind of nostalgia that that drives into that. I mean that is really what collective memory is all about, right? It's about how the past is collectively modified. I mean. I mean it's sort of interesting that you you bring up the the sort of example of like the broken like a broken toe yeah. and like just like made up events in the past. Yeah, yeah. I mean that happens. That right. happens. It doesn't, and it just doesn't. It doesn't just happen individually. It happens collectively. Yeah. Like our memories of the past are not felicitous. They're not accurate. They're not true necessarily, mm-hmm. and they can in fact be 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 conflicting. Mm-hmm. Right. You know when. Um, when David Lowenthal says the past is a foreign country, in some ways it's multiple foreign countries, right? It, it's actually, you know, there are these sort of tensions around the history that are developed where, where people just fundamentally b- believe that things happened differently mm-hmm. um, that are, you know, can be the root of, of a lot of violence um, in, in, over time. Um, and this is often, this, this kind of like, this is why I say that there's like not a not one version of the past. I often, you know, I don't even think there's like a true version of the past. Um, it there are people's reconstructions of the past, mm-hmm. uh, you know, based on the kinds of evidence we have, but filtered necessarily through their sort of biases and agendas. It's yeah, I mean the the history is it's got to write in its name story. So you know where where does this? So if I want to tell a story about like World War Two, you know where do I start? You know do I start three million years ago? Do I start in nineteen thirty nine? Do I start in nineteen thirty? Like when did that story start and when does it end? You know does it end with the atomic bomb? Does it end in the Cold War? Like these are all decisions. These are all creative fiction fictional decisions because there is no beginning. There is no end. And then my my subject. Uh, the viewpoint can change in millions and millions of ways. So, you know, like which side of the story, the victor gets to tell the history. Um, but, you know, that's that's incredibly biased. You know, what about the people who can't tell their story anymore? You know, how how can we value that, find it, and then remove biasy to to learn from it? It's difficult. It's, it's uncomfortable. And I mean, and that's where it's, that's where a collective memory to me gets really interesting mm-hmm. when you is sort of digging into the weeds and, and looking at historical examples of, of sort of how collective memory um, resolved. 
because we often say like that history is written by the victors and yeah. I mean to a certain degree that's true mm-hmm. um, you know and but you know to extrapolate that a little bit more it's really like official histories are 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 written by those who are powerful yeah um, in particular contexts and okay. and but but there's a big but to that those kinds of histories are just the ones that are sort of written down and in wide circulation. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that there aren't other versions circulating at the same time in quieter spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a professor uh, when I was in in graduate school, uh, James Birch, who writes about this in the context of the Soviet Union. Okay. And, you know, like one of the major, like, contexts in which his his you know sort of official versions of history are circulated mm. right is in schools yeah right you know school curriculum school textbooks like you know what they say and how those histories are taught defines the way that like kids growing up just like understands the past in this in a kind of nebulous generalized kind of way mm-hmm. um it and even more importantly, like in an unquestioning way, it's like if I right. learned it in school, then it must be true. Oh, yeah. um, Teacher told right? me. And you don't sort of learn those the critical thinking skills to question that until later and until those a lot of those ideas are so deeply ingrained that they became very difficult to question. Yes. Um, you know, unless you end up taking a college class on that particular topic or, you know, whatever. Right. He, so he he um, he writes about this in the context of the Soviet Union, and he talks about how the Soviet Union, like really, un- and the, the, the sort of authoritarian government of the Soviet Union, really understood this. Uh-huh. They really understood how important sort of the historical narrative of the Soviet Union was to the point that they fabricated a huge portion of the historical narrative of the Soviet yes. Union. Yes. But the problem was that they got they got too excited about fabricating it. Mm-hmm. And so they would, but so they would, you know, write these textbooks and they would have like the official version of like the Soviet union with, you know, these various heroes and various villains and like, you know, the glorious sort of Soviet government and the, the, the glory of sort of communism and, and, and these sorts of things. But, but the problem was that they kept changing their mind. And so, you know, they had these textbooks that were in schools and like every year the official history would change and like, you know, they couldn't afford to circulate new textbooks every year, you know, as like particular people came in and out of favor in government and like, like, like literally like the super nuanced kinds of changes. And some of them were like, you know, ultimately like had sort of big ramifications to the, the history. And so, you know. The teachers would have to like scribble out sec- blackout sections of the textbook and like you know s- stuff like this. <laughs> so like it- it's so funny because it's the same stuff happens in America. It's just not as nearly as overt. <laughs> yeah. and, and there's this constant battle over like what the story of history is. It's just not so you know. It's just much more subversive because it's not ha- it's not happening you know at the federal level you know a lot of it happens at school bur- school boards and state school uh, uh, board levels um, and so a lot of debates around intellectual freedom in this country really are. so anyway so the the it became very dangerous in the Soviet Union to talk about history in any way that wasn't like the current official mm-hmm. narrative um, which was often very confusing to people because it changed so often. But, but alternative understandings like that reflected people's real experiences of those times maintained. It's not like people's individual memories like disappeared. Right. I mean, there is good evidence that people's memories, you know, are can be substantially altered over time mm-hmm. by being exposed to alternative you know, right. critiques of those narratives. But what what what. Uh, Jim Orange talks about is he talks about the importance of the kitchen table. Mm. He talks about the importance of private spaces mm. as loci of sort of the perpetuation of resistant narratives. Places where it was mm. safe to talk outside of the narrative, right? Where with trusted people and friends, where you could reminisce about your past, right? Which like these official narratives, like they totally alienate you from your own past. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of ways. And so there's the, you know, but the, the, the places where those 
of you know alternative narratives um and you, know, you can't even really say if one is more true or not i mean it's pretty clear that the official narratives were not true but you know e even these resistant narratives are filtered through people's experiences and and you know and 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 you know personal relationships to those paths but they regardless sort of directly resisted aspects of the official narratives that were that were sort of passing through and you know remembered about you know people's relations who got sent to internment camps and, and you know uh, labor camps and, and remembered like this, this sort of moments of violence and remembered these kinds of like things that were not allowed to be spoken of otherwise mm -hmm. and that that happens i think all the time so as much as as history is written by the victors there are always alternate strains running through through history it, ma it makes me think of this really cool uh <laughs> kind of i don't know phenomenon i guess but it's like this idea of new traditions so it just today in modernity 2021 you know internet ai like Moore's law, things are getting crazier and crazier, uh, globalization, climate change, you know, pandemics, everything. Um, it brings about a lot of existential dread, lack of security, and there's a new market for traditions. There's a, like, a heightened need for nostalgia. You know, the 50s is a common one in like American populism um, or, you know, anytime really. But basically latching, reaching for some ontological security so feeling like i'm you know i belong in this world people were before me i know i don't know what to do anymore so i need to like learn from the past there's this idea of new traditions where people will make up cultural traditions like i know some scandinavian countries like people will start wearing these hats that no one ever really wore but they're a symbol of tradition and culture that don't exist and i i can see that you know, even just from the family, the nuclear level, like my parents, you know, you know, our family eats dinner on Sundays and I'm going to tell my kids we eat dinner on Sunday. We, we didn't really eat dinner together on Sundays, but that's a new tradition I'm making up to ground myself in a past that doesn't exist. So I feel better about today. It's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, I think that's right. Like, like people crave this kind of anchoring. Yeah. And I mean, there's actually like a whole literature on not just like new traditions, but like how, uh, you know, sort of post-World War II really we've become really obsessed with memory and mm. the past, like yeah. as a, as a sort of global society. But I mean, for, I think, I think really particularly sort of white Western society mm. more than anything else. Um, you know, which is which is in a lot of ways attributed to globalization and sort of displacement of people, and you know, both you know by choice and not by choice. And then more recently, like just the fact that you know everybody's moving around all the time. I mean, you, neither you nor I live now, and you know, in the places we grow up, no. and you know. I don't know about you, but I mean, I grew up in Southwest Florida, which wasn't where either part side of my family was from. And I'm never going to go back there. And I'm probably <laughs> never going to live in the same city as my parents ever again, or right. any of my family outside of my, you know, my, my wife, and my kid, my nuclear family, and which is just so different fundamentally mm -hmm. than the sort of historical experience of life. And, you know, when people move, there's always been a need to sort of develop strategies for sort of identity building and this sort of thing. And, and so this, these kinds of ideas around new traditions, whether it's like, like, like so ex as explicit as you're making it yeah. or the sort of like, you know, adopt conversion of traditions that happened in, you know, ethnic migrant neighborhoods in the first half of the 20th century or among college students who are all coming from other places and that tr have to build sets of traditions in order to create a sort yeah. of body of people so that they have a common identity in order to be able to effectively live together. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like this sort of idea about, you know, and sometimes, you know, to some degree, those things are attached to, to, attached to the past and to some degree they're not. Mm -hmm. But like the, 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 that sort of, the sort of like, 
I think that that's really like you're saying, like that sort of tradition making is really key to people's sort of comfort and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, ontological security. I know I was like trying to not say that, but like I don't even know what that means. It's just like a stupid buzzword. I ha- like you know throw out there and stuff. Yeah, they're they're sort of like security <laughs> in their their sort of understanding of who they are. It's just yeah, we all want to fit in. Yeah, we all want to fit in. Oh man, and my undergrad, I went to University of Vermont, and we did a naked bike ride every year. That was our pasture. They don't do that anymore believe it or not but (laughs) i believe that yeah well yeah do you have anything else you wanted to say before we wrap up here this has been a blast good um i mean i i guess i think i think my just sort of like riffing off the things we've talked about Mm. like you know we're in the, the sort of things we're talking about like not not to be too dramatic but and and you know, I, I sort of always feel a little weird saying these things because my context is, is you know, my, my actual research is on the ancient Maya. Mm. And like, in a lot of ways, it's it's sort of a, an esoteric kind of anchor point. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's really interesting to me is how that sort of anchor point has taken me to sort of like looking at these major global sort of problems uh, and, and challenges. And, you know, that, that always gives me, like, thinking about this past always gives me this kind of interesting anchor into these ideas. But, like, what's so interesting, like, like, what we're really talking about is, like, the flow of information, mm-hmm. right? And how ideas are, uh, how history is created as a sort of monolithic kind of concept. Mm-hmm. But then how information flows around that in order to... Uh, modify, um, propagandize, politicize um, those kinds of the, the sort of capital T truth of the past. And the reality is that our senses of the past and our feelings about the past and our emotions about the past and, and the way that those sort of manifest in, in discussions and the way that those can be leveraged by, you know, powerful individuals and governments and um, loudmouths and, you know, other characters like that is, is in a lot of ways the story of, of many of the greatest of the challenges of our time today. Mm-hmm. Right. Trying to figure out who to believe and whose stories of the past are a problem. And it's become, in the global sort of information environment, it's become so easy to tell stories that are appealing, that are interesting, that may appeal to who you are and and who you think you want to be, that um, it, one, you know, sort of delegitimizes more empirical versions of the truth just by sort of noise like there's there's so many versions of these how do i know which one to pick whichever (laughs) one you like whichever one you like right and you know has the possibility to lead to a lot of conflict and 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 you know different kinds of violence it's true the competing narratives competing values yeah oof it's the competing narratives. Yeah. Well, but, continue. but, but on the plus side, end, on, end with some hope. I'll cut that last. I'm one. trying, trying to end with some hope. I didn't really can't end on violence, so please. No. <laughs> on the plus side. Yeah. One of the things, uh, I, you know, that the, the power on the flip side, the power of competing narratives is it also allows for, um, sort of real hopeful versions of the past to endure, you know, despite the crush of, of those who want to cast the past in, in, uh, in agenda driven, um, ways. Absolutely. This has been a blast. I could have kept going, but we try to keep it under an hour. Sure. And this has been really fun. Thank you so much. Very, uh, 
like uh, I don't know, nutritious conversation for me. I liked it. Good. Well, I I, I had fun too, Cole. Thank you all so much for listening. Episode four will be with the incredible writer and animal studies scholar, Leslie Haywood. Until then, peace.